Hello, my name's Florence. Welcome to the OBS pod. I'm an NHS obstetrician, hoping to share some thoughts and experiences about my working life. Perhaps you enjoy Call the Midwife, maybe birth fascinates you, or you're simply curious about what exactly an obstetrician is. You might be pregnant and preparing for birth. Perhaps you work in maternity and want to know what makes your obstetric colleagues tick, or you want some fresh ideas and inspiration. Whichever of these is the case, and for that matter, anyone else that's interested, the OBSPOD is for you. Episode 3. Flying Solo. So in practical terms, the training of an obstetrician and gynaecologist progresses through various levels of supervision. So these are direct supervision. When you're under the steady gaze of a senior, all cases are discussed. There's constructive criticism that will help you develop either your diagnostic skills or suggestions for improved operating technique um, or advice given about what investigations to do or what treatment to instigate. So people start under direct supervision and it's not that you then completely leave direct supervision. It may be that for as you get more senior, some things remain um, directly supervised, more complex cases or more complex surgery. But for other things, you'll move to indirect supervision. And what this essentially means is that some of the things you do, you do independently. So that might mean the consultant is out of the room if you're operating. Um, they'll be ready, available to be called, um, but you're essentially able to do something independently most of the time. And when a case is discussed, that might be that you um, present the case and you present um, what you think are the investigations that should be done, what you think the diagnosis is, what you think the treatment might be. And then your senior will comment. So it might be a bit more of a sense check about essentially, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And that's how you learn and and develop. So in Obzangani training, the really big leap in the training grades was from what's called senior house officer. So SHO for short to registrar level. And this is because a senior house officer is essentially supervised for pretty much everything directly. So they may see a patient and then come and present it back. They will see patients on their own, but um, they're not doing very much at all with indirect supervision. And these days, that's the equivalent to the move from Um, the specialty training grade two to grade three or four. So ST2 to ST3 or four, depending on the rotation. And it's a really big step. It's a significant increase in responsibility. And that's really daunting. And these days, there's a lot more support about how you make this. Um, And there are specific training courses and things that are ST2s have to do to progress to ST3. And when they start in ST3, 
um, and some places even for ST4, they will have senior trainee support all the time. So how do you make this transition? And that's um, quite a challenging thing. And part of it is around confidence. So confidence is a funny thing because you need to be confident to operate, to make decisions, to look after people. But overconfidence can be a bad thing. We need to know our limitations. We need to know what's safe to take on and what we need help for. If you're underconfident, then that's also a problem because you limit yourself and you don't step up. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how I made that step up today. So when I was a second year SHO, I was working in a really busy unit and at night, I would have a registrar on with me and I would have a consultant who was on from home. So essentially, me and the registrar were a bit of a team. So I would do a lot of the work and then I would call the registrar for things that are a bit more complicated. And when you're an SHO, you're usually doing some straightforward deliveries yourself, but usually with this direct supervision I've been talking about. And one night shift, I had a woman who was very into natural childbirth. She was um, using um, an acupuncturist who was with her in labour and she had mats on the floor, she had dimmed lights, she had a very home environment. And I was called to see her because the midwife was concerned about the baby's heartbeat and she'd been pushing for some time and um, the baby's heartbeat was um, decelerating. So um, part of that is normal um, as the baby's head comes down um, to get some deceleration, some drops in the baby's heart rate. But this um, heartbeat trace was concerning and the midwife was concerned. So she called me because I was the first call. And I assessed the woman and I felt that she needed um, assisted delivery, assisted delivery with a Vantuse suction cup. So being the SHO, I rang the registrar. Um, I was also having some difficulty communicating with this woman, the urgency of what needed to be done and why um, to do a Vantuse you need to put a woman in a certain position um, called lithotomy. So that's with the legs up in stirrups um, so that you can achieve um, delivery. So I rang the registrar and explained the context and the history and what was happening and that this woman needed a Vantuse and that I was having difficulty conveying um, the need for this and the urgency of the need for this. Um, And this particular registrar said, what are you ringing me for? get on and do the Vantus. Now, at the time, I was really angry. I felt really unsupported. And I really felt that was unreasonable. Um, It was his job to support me, supervise me, help me. But actually, that anger became determination. I knew that responsibility rested with me now. And I needed to just go in and take control of the situation, take responsibility, explain to that woman what I needed to do and why, be assertive about it, 
and get that baby out safely. And I did. I did just that and it went well. And it was quite a step for me. And when I reflected back on it, I was still really angry at having been left in that position. But, you know, as the years passed, I started to appreciate actually that made me step up. That made me do something that that registrar obviously realised I was capable of doing. In the same hospital, um, later on in the year, there was a significant shortage of registrars. Um, There was uh, some long-term sick leave and maternity leave, and we were really struggling to get locums. And so because I was nearly ready to be a registrar and I was applying for registrar jobs at that time, I was asked to step up onto the registrar rota. Um, And this was a really good opportunity for me to get more experience at registrar level in a familiar environment. Um, And during the day, you know, absolutely fine. A lot of people around, consultants around, a lot of support. Um, But night shifts, slightly different story. And I was quite worried about my first night on call. So it was agreed that for my first night on call, one of the two senior registrars would stay in the hospital. So they wouldn't actually do anything, but they would be sleeping on site uh, in the hospital so that if I got into trouble, there was someone to call. Of course, uh, SOD's law being what it is, my first night on call was incredibly busy. Really, really busy. Lots going on on the labour ward. Lots of women in labour. Um, I took four emergency cases to theatre and the last case I took to theatre was um, a crash or category one section. So this means that there is an immediate threat to the life of the woman or the baby. And that means that you need to have that baby out, ideally half an hour after you've taken the decision. So after you've recognised there's a problem. So the woman um, had um, vaginal bleeding and signs of an abruption. That's when the placenta separates prematurely from the wall of the womb and can cause a shortage of oxygen for the baby and um, heavy bleeding for the mother. So it's a a life-threatening situation for both of them, in fact. Um, So I took the decision to go to theatre Um, and do this um, crash section, as we used to call it then. Um, Massive adrenaline rush, my heart thumping uh, in my chest, um, completely responsible for the outcome of this mother and this baby. I don't actually know why I didn't think to call the senior registrar at all, um, but I didn't, maybe because I sort of knew that I did know what I was doing. Um, So went to theatre, got cross-matched blood, Um, did the cesarean, had the neonatal team there ready for the baby um, who resuscitated the baby and um, everything actually went uh, really well um, and both of them had a really good outcome. So at this hospital we had a breakfast teaching meeting and one of the consultants came in the next morning after this horrendous night on call and basically said fantastic. I think you've passed with flying colours. Don't need any support anymore. No need uh, for us to have a senior registrar on site. You're you're ready. 
uh, you're obviously uh, ready to be a registrar. And I must admit, I was slightly stunned uh, by this. It was fantastic that the consultant had such confidence in me. And and they were right. Uh, I acted up for two months. I was attached to a specific consultant. That consultant said to me that he thought that the others, the other consultants, thought they they'd shortchanged him uh, by giving uh, him me as his reg for the two months. But actually, he felt he was really lucky. Um, and that was a real boost in my confidence and um, my belief that I, I could do this job and, and I was able and ready to be a registrar. So then I went off to apply for my first proper registrar job and there was a centralised interview system and there was quite a shortage of jobs at that point because Workforce planning means they regulate the number of doctors going into different specialties at any one time. And it seemed like they'd kind of overtrained people. And because they were switching to a system where you did specialty training for five years rather than getting a separate registrar and senior registrar rotation, um, they were introducing uh, a number system called the Kalman number. And there was a real shortage. So I didn't have a lot of choice of jobs. Um, and I applied for North Thames region. And this was not just, it sounds like London, but it wasn't London. It was London stretching out far out to Essex. And this also meant that you didn't meet anyone from the hospitals you were going to go and work at when you went for interview. So you'd never met anyone from the hospital. You'd be allocated to your hospital and then you would just start. So on day one of my first proper registrar job, I had a very long motorway drive um, to my new hospital and um, life being what it is, I got a puncture on the motor on the motorway. Pretty scary actually. Um, and this was in the days pre-mobile phones. So I had to call for roadside assistance on one of those little orange phone boxes and um, call the RAC because although I knew how to change a tyre, a wheel on the car, I couldn't actually get the bolts undone. So it was very frustrating. So I was incredibly late and I arrived at the hospital for my first day feeling extremely flustered, uh, really worried about what sort of first impression would I make and arrived to find a consultant waiting for me on the labour ward. And I was pretty stressed and he explained he was waiting because he needed to assess whether I could do a caesarean. So I came in from having had a very stressful, very long drive. There was no kind of induction in those days. These days we we uh, acclimatise doctors to the hospital they're working at. Uh, for a couple of days, um, introduce them to the department and so on. But basically I was straight in and uh, straight into doing a cesarean. Uh, he assisted me for one case and then said, fantastic, that's all I needed to see. You can do a cesarean, carry on. So it was a great place to train. I was the only registrar attached to a consultant firm 
and I worked with two consultants, one each for six months. It was very much in at the deep end. There was an expectation immediately that I would be able to do everything. Most of the registrars were more experienced than me. Um, There were five of us and uh, two of us were year one registrars and everyone else was uh, more experienced. And when I say there was an expectation I would do everything, that's how the hospital was organised. So, for example, when we had a theatre list, um, it wasn't me and the consultant in a theatre. We had what's called a double theatre list. So you'd have two theatres either side and in the middle you'd have a joint scrub room and in each theatre you'd have patients having surgery. So the idea was the consultant would operate in one theatre and I would operate in the other theatre. So by definition, under indirect supervision, doing my own thing. And this was okay for very straightforward cases, but for more complicated cases or what we call major cases, such as a hysterectomy, uh, this was not ideal. And my consultant worked quite hard picking for me fairly straightforward cases that he thought I would be able to do. And when I got stuck or wasn't sure about something, I had to explain to the theatre nurses and they would pop next door and my consultant would walk away from the patient he was operating on and come in gowned and gloved with his arms folded so as not to um, desterilize himself or contaminate my theatre and peer over my shoulder and give me some instructions. I'd just like to reassure you standards have changed massively and I would never expect our trainees to operate alone in the way I did. These days, if a consultant isn't present in a list, the whole list is cancelled and you certainly don't have double theatres that operate in this way in this country. However, I'm really glad I had this experience. It definitely positively contributed to the development of my surgical skills and my confidence as a doctor. Day surgery was potentially even more scary. Day surgery was done in a peripheral hospital, about 20 minutes drive from the main hospital. And when I was rotated to day surgery, it was either me going to do the day surgery or my consultant. So when I went to do day surgery, I was entirely on my own. And that was fantastic for my confidence to turn up be the surgeon for a whole list. So I would see the patients, consent the patients, do their surgery, talk to them about it afterwards and go. But if there'd been any kind of complication or any kind of problem, there was absolutely no safety net or ability to do something about that. And so when I look back, I think, I'm extremely lucky that things went so well. In a way, my training kind of went backwards. So I did solo lists in peripheral hospitals and double lists uh, in my first year as a registrar. And then as I became more and more senior, um, training changed and trainees started to get more and more supervision. So as I got more senior, I actually got more support, which was slightly weird. From a labour ward perspective, I was learning masses from the midwives. 
So consultants were not really on the labour ward in the same way they are now. Um, Consultants were around in the building nine to five, but they weren't really on the labour ward running the labour ward. You were, as the registrar, running the labour ward. So a lot of the time at nights and weekends, I would be asking the midwives, what do you usually do in this situation? Or what do the other registrars do? And the midwives were obviously knowledgeable, had immense years of experience between them um, and were alongside me. But also, um, I discovered that they had confidence in me. I may be learning from them, but the confidence of the labour board sister and the theatre team to judge when I needed their help, when I was okay on my own, and when I needed the consultant called was invaluable. My most scary experience during my first year as a registrar was during a second stage caesarean section. So that is when the woman is fully dilated Um, but the baby's head hasn't come down, hasn't descended into the pelvis. And you may have tried an instrumental assisted birth with von twos or forceps, or you may have judged that the head just isn't sufficiently within the pelvis to do that. Um, So either you've tried an instrumental and it's been unsuccessful, or you are unable to try because the baby's head is judged to be too high. And this was at a weekend The consultant was at home and when I started to do the caesarean, one of the most difficult things is to disimpact the head. So remember the head has been pushed down with lots of contractions into the pelvis so it may be wedged in and um, it can be quite difficult to get the head back up and at this point my consultant was sort of 10-20 minutes away. Well once you've opened the womb, the uterus, you've got a finite amount of time. You know, after five, 10 minutes, this is going to be real trouble for this baby. So um, I tried harder and harder. The scrub team tried to help me. And it's a very, very lonely feeling when everyone in that theatre is looking to you to save the day. You are the only person that can deliver that baby and you are unable to do it. That is absolutely terrifying and lonely feeling. In the end, actually, my assistant, who was a GP trainee, managed to help me get that baby out um, by um, pushing from down below. And that's something we used to do quite a lot, but we do less of now because that can cause complications for the baby. Um, But he managed to dislodge the baby's head. I managed to get the baby out The baby did need some help from the neonatal team, but did really, really well as a little girl. And then I stopped. I was physically shaking so much. My hand had gone so much into spasm and I was so shaken up by everything that I couldn't actually physically finish the surgery. Um, And fortunately, at that point, my consultant arrived. He took charge. He finished the operation and... Then he sat me down and reassured me that I'd done a really good job, that I had carried on in a very difficult situation. I had got that baby out, that baby was doing well and that that family were really, really grateful to me. It's not how I felt. I felt horrendous. I felt like it was my fault. I felt 
It was my inadequacy. I felt I'd caused the problem. But the support and reassurance and help that I'd received from my consultant has stayed with me to this day. So my first registrar year was a a brilliant year of kind of growing up and owning my skills so that by the time I left and rotated on, I was confident with that responsibility. And when I was on labour ward running a shift, I felt like I was literally standing at the helm of a ship. The labour ward board was in my next place was a kind of slightly slanted, um, almost like a, a drawing table you know, at sort of 45 degree angle. And I would literally put my hands either side of the label board on which we would write all the clinical details about who was in which room. And I would really feel like I was captain of a ship. So now for today's zesty bit. So I think the zesty bit from today is that sometimes being made to stand on your own two feet is good. It takes courage And sometimes you can see that you can do that, but sometimes you lose sight of your judgment of what you can and can't do. And sometimes we need others, others who may be able to see when we're ready more easily than we can ourselves. So sometimes we need to trust in their judgment and take that step forward and challenge ourselves even when we doubt ourselves. Pushing our boundaries and doing something new and learning from that experience can be really rewarding. And one of my jobs now is to help others take that step. I see it as a key role I play with trainees, students and midwives to say, don't worry, I wouldn't be letting you do this if I didn't believe you were ready for it. That's a vote of confidence in them that may help them believe in the ability they already have. So if you work in maternity, that's part of your role. Helping women believe they can birth their babies. Helping midwives and junior doctors believe that they can do what they're doing, but also helping them recognise when they can't, when they've reached their limit and that they need help. So I do hope you've enjoyed listening to the OBS pod. If you have, please do leave me a review, subscribe and join me again to explore more about the day-to-day life of an NHS obstetrician. Please do share what you've enjoyed about listening and particularly if you've done anything differently as a result. I would like to confirm that although I'm talking about my experiences in my working life, there is no intention to identify any specific woman or family under my care. I take confidentiality very seriously. If you want more information about me, I can be found on Twitter at FWMaternity. And do check out the Matex hashtag, M-A-T-E-X-P, as well as our website, matex.org.uk, for ideas on how to improve women's experience of maternity care. Thank you for listening.